The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for October 24th, 2021. There's been a lot of news recently regarding the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack as developments unfold, including this week when the committee voted unanimously in favor of contempt of Congress charges against Steve Bannon. Underpinning this story has been how Congress can act as a bulwark against anti-democratic efforts. For this week, I chose an episode from March 25th, 2017, in which Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy talk with Representative Adam Schiff to discuss the role Congress should play in repelling illiberalism and what can be done to protect liberal democracy domestically and abroad. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 25th, 2017. On Monday, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence held its first open hearing on Russian interference in the U.S. election, with testimony by FBI Director James Comey and NSA Director Admiral Michael Rogers. The hearing made headlines due to Director Comey's announcement of an ongoing investigation into the Russia connection. On Tuesday, Representative Adam Schiff, ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, came to the Brookings Institution to talk with Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes and Susan Hennessy about what Schiff terms the rise of the autocrats and what his branch of government can do about it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 215, Representative Adam Schiff on the role of Congress in protecting liberal democracy. I don't usually do uh, protracted introductions of people, and I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can, but uh, there are some things that I actually want to say about uh, Congressman Schiff, uh, with whom I actually have a long relationship that he probably does not remember. Um, and, um, but I actually think the relationship, history of our interactions is actually highly significant to the subject that he's going to be speaking about. And at the risk of embarrassing him, I want to, uh, I want to lay it out a little bit. Um, so first of all, Congressman Schiff uh, didn't used to be a media celebrity. And he didn't used to have 117,000 Twitter followers. And he didn't used to be the, the sort of person who you know, gave a major address at the Brookings Institution that fills the room and spills out uh, into overflow space. Uh, in the fall of 2001, when 9-11 happened, he was a backbench uh, minority congressman and a freshman at that. And that is a low status position. <laughs> um, and... Um, I was an editorial writer at the Washington Post at the time, and I have to be a little bit careful about how I talk about this because we have a policy at the Washington Post that we don't disclose who wrote what editorials ever, and I'm going to try to honor that today. Uh, but if you guys want to read between certain lines, I certainly won't correct you. Um, so it was in November of 2001 that I got a call from... Congressman Schiff about a really wonky bill he had just introduced uh, entitled uh, the Deadly Biological Agents Control Act of 2001. And I had written some editorials about, in the wake of 9-11, about uh, 
the lack of federal controls over uh, really dangerous pathogens. And here was a member who had thought about what a structure of federal regulation would look like. Uh, we had a long conversation about it. And that basic structure of designated fed, uh, select agents that you have to have a license to possess or distribute, uh, that's now law. Um, in a few months later, um, by the way, it, it's law not as a direct result of the introduction of the bill, um, but that basic structure is, is, has been federal law, I think, since 2002 or 2003. Um, a few months later, uh, we found ourselves confronted as a society by the problem of what happens when U.S. citizens are detained by, um, by uh, the US, for U.S. forces outside of the criminal justice system. And I got another call from Congressman Schiff, who you know, had been a, a, an assistant U.S. attorney and who had done some real thinking about what the relationship between criminal process and... Uh, and military detention should look like. And he'd introduced a bill called the Detention of Enemy Combatants Act, which was an effort to, A, authorize certain military detentions, but, B, create process for them uh, and create guidance that would be compliant with international law for the way these things were done. This was not the way civil libertarians were talking at the time. It certainly wasn't the way the Bush administration was talking at the time. That basic structure is also now law. Um, uh, earlier that year, I've actually done this out of sequence, I got still another call from Congressman Schiff about a bill he'd introduced entitled the Military Tribunals Act of 2002, which had a similar structure, actually. It was an effort to authorize the... Um, it was an, an effort to authorize the military commissions but provide guidance that would make them compliant with norms of fairness, international law, et cetera. Uh, similarly, this was not where civil libertarians were at the time. It was really not where the Bush administration was at the time. That basic structure, which Congress eventually caught up with in 2006 and then again in 2009 in the Military Commissions Act, is also now law. So I think you may see where I'm going with this, which is that... Uh, Congressman Schiff was somebody who was thinking very deeply, very early, about the role of the legislature and the role of legislators in fateful national security decisions that we're thinking about as a society. Uh, and in 2004, and again, I, we don't disclose at the Post who writes what editorials, so I, you know, but the Washington Post ran an editorial in April 3rd of 2004 uh, that begins, we have complained before of Congress's passivity in balancing American liberty and security in the wake of the attacks of September 11th, 2001, particularly as to such questions as how military detainees domestically and abroad ought to be handled. The law provides no easy answers. Many of the questions the nation faces are essentially legislative in character. Yet instead of crafting new laws that both authorize appropriate detentions and put limits on the executive branch's powers, the national legislature has preferred to sit on its hands and foist political responsibility for these decisions onto the Bush administration and the courts. Representative Adam Schiff has been an honorable exception. And it goes on from there to talk about some of this, uh, particularly in the, in the detention space, excuse me. Um, so I want to say all of that is a long-winded way of saying for which I apologize, that there is a real continuity between the role that he was playing quite early, uh, really as early as 2001, and the role that he is playing now, um, which is to say that to insist that the legislature has a role, has an important role in thinking about investigating uh, what strikes him, and I'll let him speak for himself on this, of course, but also strikes a lot of people in this room, which is, I think, why this room is full of people right now, uh, as an ongoing threat to liberal democracy, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and to think about what the role of a congressional investigation, what the role of legislative authority is in confronting those questions, I want to just say is, is actually 
really consistent with uh, who Representative Schiff has been since he was a uh, freshman backbencher uh, with no ability, uh, on the surface anyway, to uh, pass legislation. And I want to say, finally, and I will turn it over to him, um, that this track record that I just laid out, which is that the ideas with which we think about the legislative function with respect to important problems actually does matter over the long run. It does shape the way the law looks. It shapes the way we have military commissions today. It shapes our regime for detention today. We haven't talked about the AUMF, but he's done a lot of work in that area too. And it even shapes these technical little questions like what the regulatory regime is for biological agents. Um, I haven't talked at all about Russia, and I'm not going to, because that's what he's going to do. I'm going to stop here and just say it is a great pleasure to have Representative Schiff here. Uh, and by the way, in case I haven't mentioned, he is, of course, the ranking member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which is conducting the investigation that uh, one of the investigations of Russian hacking uh, and other active measures in conjunction with the U.S. election. It's a pleasure to have you. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, that was a wonderful introduction. And if you ever come across that editor at the Washington Post, um, please thank Ben for me. Um, and Susan, uh, thank you uh, as well for inviting me, and, and thank you to Brookings, um, ben was very kind in the choice selection he made of some of my uh, legislative initiatives um, and, uh, and was kind enough to exclude some others that landed with a great big thud uh, and went nowhere. Um, I, I think of one in particular where I was trying to deal with the challenge of how do you handle enemy combatants when they're arrested, how do you handle um, the situation when you arrest someone overseas uh, on terrorism charges. Uh, obviously, there's been a tension between the parties on whether they should be treated uh, as an enemy combatant or as a criminal defendant, and do they go to the tribunals, do they go to the federal criminal courts. Uh, and the challenge in using the criminal justice system is, uh, among other things, that uh, not just the, the need to advise people of Miranda rights, but um, the need to present them before a magistrate in a timely way. That's generally when people clam up. It's not necessarily when they're advised of their rights, but when they're brought before a magistrate. Uh, and uh, so I introduced a bill that I thought might hit the sweet spot of support between Democrats and Republicans, where we would express a sense of Congress that the good faith exception uh, to the Miranda requirement that gives you some more time before you advise someone of Miranda rights uh, ought to be broadly construed in the terrorism context, uh, and vis-a-vis -vis the presentment clause uh, that the attorney general upon affidavit could seek an extension of the time before making presentation to a magistrate under XYZ circumstances. And I did hit that sweet spot where neither Democrats nor Republicans were willing to support it. Uh, I think I hit a similar sweet spot, Ben, uh, in an effort to craft an, craft an AUMF uh, that would not cross the GOP red line of restricting the president geographically, uh, but would also provide a recourse uh, in Congress where you could have a war powers-like expedited vote uh, if a president introduced forces uh, to either amend or repeal the authorization that was granted. And that similarly uh, attracted uh, no support from either side. Um, so thank you for being very selective in your choice of uh, legislative uh, accomplishments. Um, but uh, as someone spends a lot of time thinking about national security uh, and the intersection of policy and law uh, and the distribution of powers under the Constitution, I'm uh, very grateful for lawfare. Uh, these issues inspire a lot of passion uh, and a lot of misinterpretation and mischaracterization. But lawfare has provided a space for reasoned and responsible discussion by a range of voices, and I greatly thank you for it. Uh, how many publications uh, can uh, earn the distinction of being selectively misquoted and misrepresented and appear in a tweet by the president? 
Okay, actually quite a lot. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's a badge of honor. Uh, while Lawfare is a relative newcomer to our national debate, and the Brookings Institute has played a prominent role in the formulation of policy across a broad range of uh, foreign and domestic issues for decades now. Along with the government itself, the American electorate, and our free press, Brookings and its peers have come to constitute a crucial fourth leg of the American policy process. The value of Brookings, quality, independence, and impact are essential to stimulate change and progress, and I hope you'll continue your important work, especially at this unsettled moment in the life of our nation. The past months have left us all reaching for an understanding of where we are, for a sense of what lies ahead, uh, for a path forward to meet the challenges and sometimes for the right words to describe the unprecedented. Uh, as I often like to say, I'm running out of adjectives and expletives. Um, in the two months since Inauguration Day, things that seemed once unthinkable uh, now seem quite routine. An air of semi-permanent crisis has settled over the nation's capital, where there's a palpable, palpable disquiet that I've never seen in the decade and a half that I've served in Congress, and I think that disquiet crosses party lines. Uh, consider the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Investigation into the Russian Active Measures Campaign against the 2016 election. Yesterday morning, the HIPSI held the first of two open hearings this month. The next will be next Tuesday, a hearing which the directors of the FBI and NSA stated unequivocally that a startling accusation of illegal wiretapping made by a sitting president against his predecessor was patently false, rebutted another statement the president issued during the hearing as also inaccurate, a rare opportunity to use the directors to fact-check the president in real time, and informed the country for the first time that the president's campaign personnel were under federal investigation for possible collusion with the Russians. And all of this was before lunch. <laughs> I came to Congress in 2001 and vividly recall the September 11th attacks in the weeks that followed. The tension was palpable back then, as well. F-15s patrolled the skies uh, over Washington, and the National Guard troops were on the streets of major American cities. But there was also a unity of purpose and a resolve that together as Americans we could confront the scourge of Al-Qaeda and prevail. There were prolonged and bitter disagreements in the months and years ahead about how to defeat terrorism, but we were united in identifying the threat and recognizing the need to act. This time is different. Despite the unanimous conclusion of the 17 entities that make up the U.S. intelligence community that the Russian government sought to sow discord in our political process and undermine the Clinton campaign, there is a seeming hesitancy to dig too deeply into possible collusion between the Trump Organization and the Russians, and to ascribe too much to Moscow lest it call into question the legitimacy of the outcome of the 2016 election. Now, by, as I have been saying for several weeks, I hope that our committee can transcend partisan division and work together in the coming months to produce a report to which we can all attach our names. This is a difficult test for Congress in an era when the legislative process has too often fulfilled, uh, failed to fulfill even its most routine duties. And whether we can meet that test is far too early to say. But I certainly believe that it would be in the country's interest for us to do so. If at the end of the day both parties issue competing conclusions, we will ha have added very little to the nation's understanding of this attack on our democracy. It's no secret that I do not think that our investigation or the parallel one being undertaken by our Senate counterparts should be the last word on the matter. Last December, acting former director of the CIA, Michael Morell, a man who has devoted his life to keeping the nation secure and who has served presidents of both parties throughout his career, told the cipher brief that Russia's interference in the 26 elections was the political equivalent of 9-11. I agree with Mike, and I've been pushing for the creation of a 9-11-style commission that will have the time, the resources, and the charter to undertake a truly comprehensive investigation of what has happened. 
The Russian attack on our democracy last year was an unprecedented act, and it was directed, obviously, at us and unprecedented in its success. In fact, the Russian government and the Soviets before them have long been working to destabilize their European neighbors, perfecting the techniques that were deployed so effectively here last year. While Russia has always devoted enormous intelligence resources towards countering what they refer to as the main enemy, it has had much greater success in mounting political operations in Europe, especially in Eastern and Central Europe, where there are populations of ethnic Russians or economic ties to Moscow. Many of the same macroeconomic and demographic forces that have buffeted our country in recent years are also present overseas and often to a greater degree. Across Europe, high unemployment, frank social welfare systems, and growing populations are propelling right-wing and populist parties. The most consequential manifestation of this populist tide was the Brexit vote in Britain last June. Much as with Hillary Clinton in our own presidential election four months later, the Remain campaign was expected to prevail, but instead was overwhelmed by a late surge of older rural voters, a similar demographic to those who would later propel Donald Trump to victory. In France, Marie Le Pen, the National Front candidate who shares Trump's hostility to immigrants, skepticism of NATO and affinity for Putin, is expected to make it through the first round of presidential voting and into a two-candidate runoff on May 7th. In Germany, where Angela Merkel faces re-election in September, the far-right Alliance for Germany is expected to improve on its previous performance and will probably meet the threshold required to gain seats in the German parliament. The party, founded just four years ago, has been riding a surge of support in reaction to the Merkel government's 2015 decision to admit large numbers of Syrian refugees. Hungary and Poland, two former Warsaw Pact states that are now both members of NATO and the European Union, are governed by right-wing parties that use the power of the state to undermine the judiciary, the press, and other pillars of civil society. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban famously boasted in a 2014 speech that the new state that we are building is an illiberal state, a non-liberal state. In Slovakia, another former Soviet satellite, Prime Minister Robert Fico, has presided over a steady erosion of the country's rankings in terms of governance and transparency as he has worked to restrict civil liberties and judicial independence. The anti-democratic tide has even threatened countries renowned for their tolerance, progressivism, and commitment to the democratic path. In the Netherlands, voters last week may have turned back far-right candidate Geert Wilders' bid to become prime minister, but his party increased its seats in parliament, where it is now the second largest party. Europe's illiberal parties are not uniform in their platforms, but they are generally nationalistic, hostile to immigrants, and skeptical of the European Union and greater integration. Some, like Bulgaria's Ruman Radic and France's Le Pen and François Fillon, the French center-right candidate now charged with embezzlement, openly embrace Vladimir Putin and call for easing sanctions against Moscow. Others, including Polish Prime Minister Beata Sidzlo, are committed to retaining membership in NATO and the EU. But all of them, whatever their ostensible position on Russia, serve the Kremlin's interest by undermining the political order throughout Europe, and especially for the EU and NATO. This is not the Cold War, and the relationship between European populists and Moscow bears little resemblance to the mostly slavish devotion of European communists in earlier times. Rather, Russia has sought to exploit existing fractures in European societies by means of a simple but successful recipe that encompasses the following elements. Economic relationships, some above board, some otherwise. Political influence, either direct or through cutouts like supposedly independent media or NGOs. And covert influence, such as the acquisition and dumping of emails, personal information and other documents that could be damaging or embarrassing to one party or another, a phenomenon that I call the weaponization of information. A report issued by the Center for Strategic and in International Studies last October on Russian influence in Central and Eastern Europe identified these tactics as elements of Russia's doctrine 
of new generation warfare, which is primarily a strategy of influence, not of brute force, and its primary goal of breaking the international coherence of the enemy system and not about its integral annihilation. The objective is simple, to arrest and reverse European integration, to push NATO back to Russia's borders, from Russia's borders, and to the extent possible, recreate Soviet-era influence in Moscow's near abroad. The Russians have been using these types of tactics for decades, going back to Soviet times, and analysts on both sides of the Atlantic expect their active measures campaigns to continue. In the next few months, France and Germany will hold national elections, and authorities in both Paris and Berlin are bracing for a wave of hacking and dumping, as well as the dissemination of misinformation in the hopes of unseating Angela Merkel and boosting the fortunes of Marie Le Pen. Whether Putin succeeds will depend in no small measure on whether and to what extent the people of Europe recognize the Russian actions for what they are and respond accordingly. Some early indications, including the Dutch elections I mentioned a few minutes ago, would seem to lend credence to the theory that European electorates, now that they have seen it happen here, will be better able to repel the Kremlin's attempts to influence their own decision-making. But alert voters do not guarantee that Putin will fail. As I mentioned earlier, Trump benefited from Russians, Russia's active measures in spite of the fact that public speculation centered on Russian intelligence from the moment that the first DNC emails began to surface in the days before the Democratic National Convention last July. Ensuring that the assault by Russia and others on democracy does not succeed must now take its place among the first rank of foreign policy issues, a docket that is already overwhelming and not likely to get any more manageable in the foreseeable future. We and here I am referring to the international community of democracies, have a duty to act in concert to protect the electoral process in France and Germany and in other countries where Russia or other anti-democratic regimes are working to subvert elections and distort internal dialogue. As the birthplace of modern democracy and its great champion, the United States must lead this effort. But the sense among allies and others is that this is a role that our new president neither desires nor considers a priority for the United States. Several weeks ago, I accompanied Senator John McCain and a bipartisan delegation from both houses of Congress to the annual Munich Security Conference, which brings together several hundred senior policymakers and experts. The panels at this year's gathering focused on the challenge to the West, to NATO, and to democracy itself. But there was really only one question on everybody's mind in Munich that weekend. Where is America? On the stage and in the hallways, everybody wanted to know why the new president and his team have so suddenly, and with so little forethought, abandoned America's traditional place as the leader of the world's democracies. That sentiment was only intensified in the weeks since, and when Chancellor Merkel visited the White House at the end of last week, much of the commentary on both sides of the Atlantic echoed political's Politico's headline, The Leader of the Free World Meets Donald Trump. While in Munich, I attended a small dinner organized by Irish rocker and global humanitarian Bono. That's one of the advantages of traveling with John McCain. <laughs> a dinner with Bono and Bill Gates, you know, pretty, pretty sad company, really. I actually have a, a bone to pick with Bono. No single person should have that much talent because it leaves a lot less for the rest of us. Um, he's not only a brilliant musician and obviously a, a world-class philanthropist, but he speaks like a poet. And after he was uh, done discussing uh, efforts that he and others are making to end extreme poverty and preventable diseases, he effectively reminded, uh, affectingly reminded my colleagues uh, and me when he said uh, of something really precious about America, when he said, uh, I'm very proud to be Irish, I'm very proud of Ireland, but Ireland is just a country. America is also an idea. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As an American hearing Bono's words, and those of a parade of world leaders visiting the White House, Canada's Justin Trudeau, Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny, and most recently Chancellor Merkel, who have pointed out uh, and pointedly reminded the President of America's proud heritage as both the land of the opportunity and as a sanctuary for those in peril. This has been both remarkable and humbling, and has impressed upon me the damage that his executive orders are doing to our international reputation, separate and apart from the damage to our national security. In 1990, former President Ronald Reagan traveled to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, the site of Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech to keynote the dedication of a Cold War memorial constructed from eight sections of the Berlin Wall, which had come down only the year before. Towards the end of his remarks, Reagan addressed the students directly, he said, I received a letter just before I left office from a man. I don't know why he chose to write it, but I'm glad that he did. He wrote that you can go to live in France, but you can't become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Italy, but you can't become a German, an Italian. He went through Turkey, Greece, Japan, and other countries. But he said, anyone from any corner of the world can come to live in the United States and become an American. That essence of renewal and rebirth has always been at the heart of what America means to the world. It is why governments and hundreds of millions of ordinary people around the globe are so concerned. And if we are to restore America's place as guardian of democracy, and the American president as the leader of the free world, we must begin with the repudiation of this ill-conceived and odious order and the indiscriminate crackdown on undocumented immigrants. Proving once again that the unique genius of the founders, the courts have stepped into the breach to block implementation of both of the president's immigration orders. But it does not alleviate Congress from its own responsibility as a co-equal branch of government to look for better, fairer, more humane ways to secure our borders. And if Congress as a whole will not speak out, then my party must. Returning the welcome mat to America's doorstep is one of the number of steps that Congress can take to turn back the tide of illiberalism abroad and reassert our traditional leadership of the international effort to enlarge the circle of freedom. But there are others. First, the world's superpower deserves a first-rate diplomatic and development core, properly resourced and with the capacity to direct and disperse effective foreign assistance that also advances our national security interests around the world. The proposed cuts to the State Department and USAID would fundamentally impair our ability to conduct a range of vital work around the world and must be opposed and reversed. Congress, through the appropriations process, has the power to reject the gutting of our diplomacy, and I am confident that we will. Second, the promotion of human rights has always been at the heart of American foreign policy. Yet the new Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, did not even bother to show up for this year's release of the report on human rights, a sharp break with the practice of previous secretaries. I hope that the new Secretary will look for ways to highlight support for human rights going forward. Here, too, Congress has the power to act, to impose sanctions 
such as those authorized under the Magnitsky Act, by directing or withholding spending, and by using the bully pulpit of Congress to shine a spotlight on particularly egregious cases, uh, as I and others have been doing for the past decade uh, through the Congressional Caucus for Freedom of the Press. And in this context, I think about people all over the world uh, who look to the United States. I think about those young protesters in Tahrir Square uh, before their revolution was hijacked by the Islamists. Many of them now are in prison. Others are worried about going to prison. And I think they must look to the United States and wonder, are we still here? Do they still have an advocate? Do they still have a voice? And if that voice doesn't come from the White House, it is incumbent on Congress to be that voice. Third, we must respond to the manipulation of the media, the creation of actual fake news, state sponsorship of networks like RT in Russia and China's CCTV, and armies of Internet trolls who help to amplify and spread malign content are effective tools to undermine democracy and pluralism and keep the West off balance and on the defensive. Rather than slowly starving our international broadcasting programs, which for seven decades have been bringing real news and hope to millions trapped by oppression, Congress should dramatically increase our ability to meet the challenge by expanding languages and platforms and ensuring that content is relevant to a contemporary audience. We also need to direct assistance to strengthen independent media in states along Russia's frontiers, which are the target of relentless pro-Moscow propaganda. Fourth, we must continue to work with our international partners to share intelligence on attempts to undermine democracy. According to press reports, it was a tip from British intelligence that may have first alerted our government that Russia was hacking into the DNC, and our best guarantee of success is collective action and constant vigilance. Through the Annual Intelligence Authorization Act and our ongoing oversight, this is an area in which the two intelligence committees in Congress can be extremely helpful, and I intend to push for additional sharing on Russian activities. Finally, we must reaffirm our commitment to the alliances and international structures that we created in the decades after the Second World War. The UN may be maddeningly imperfect. Our NATO partners may not always meet their funding commitments, and it may seem that we are on the short end of trade disputes. But the global system that some see as so constraining is by and large an American work product and one that locks in structural advantages for the United States. Congress should reject cuts to the UN and other international organizations and forcefully restate our commitment to NATO and our other allies around the world. These are a few things that we can do outside of our borders to strengthen the general capacity of the West to defeat active measures and other hybrid campaigns against our politics. But this is a battle that must also be fought at home. The Russians and the Soviets before them have long sought to interfere in our elections. The difference is that this time they succeeded. Perhaps their tradecraft was better, and their ability to use WikiLeaks as a conduit to dump thousands of emails directly into millions of homes made the attack more effective. Or perhaps we were more vulnerable than we realized to an attack of this sort. For several decades now, since the Watergate era, a range of American institutions, including the press, has fallen dramatically in the eyes of the American people, as has trust in government. The growth of highly partisan media, amplified by megaphones like Fox and Breitbart, have made our politics so tribalized and so focused on zero-sum victories that any expression of bipartisanship is subject to criticism. When we are inclined to believe the worst about each other, is it surprising that an attack comprised of hacked and dumped material that reinforces a pre-existing opinion was so effective? In the short run, Congress can work to institute early warning systems that dictate procedures by which the intelligence community can forward timely notification to the president, the congressional leadership, and a party and affected parties as soon as suspected active measures are detected. We also need to look for ways to more actively engage the public in warning them of the provenance of what they are reading or watching. Much of this effort will have to come from private industry and Facebook, Google, and others are engaged in efforts to combat the plethora of fake news that was disseminated on their sites. Their work is decidedly in our national interest, and we should be looking for ways to support it, consistent with our commitment to free expression. 
We must also do more to harden our political infrastructure to mitigate the chances of intrusions and possible manipulation of state voter rolls or other data necessary for the conduct of our elections. And clearly, no president can allow an attack of this sort to continue without making public attribution and informing the public. I understand the dilemma President Obama found himself in, but his voice would have been critical in ensuring that the full dimensions of the Russian meddling penetrated into the electorate's consciousness. Ultimately, however, the Russian effort succeeded in its goal of undermining support for Hillary Clinton in the democratic process more generally because we allowed it to. I have said it twice before this morning, and I'll repeat it a third time now. Media reports from the beginning pointed to Russian involvement. Everyone knew what was going on and who was behind it while it was occurring. When Donald Trump on July 27, 2016, called on Russia to hack and release Hillary Clinton's emails, he was doing so in response to the nearly universal belief that Russia was behind the dumping of internal DNC communications. Nevertheless, Trump, his campaign and news outlets from coast to coast, gleefully pounced on the emails from senior DNC staff and senior Clinton campaign aide John Podesta without much hesitation, given how and why it ended up in their hands. Worse still was the receptivity of huge swaths of the American public to Moscow's ill-gotten gains. This must never be allowed to happen again. To do that, we must harden the population against these type of attacks and simultaneously work to detoxify our politics. Neither will be easy. We need to prepare the American people to recognize and reject these type of attacks when they occur. Finland, which shares a long border with Russia and has been a target of protracted active measures campaigns going back decades, relies on strong institutions and a well-educated populace as the first line of defense against its enormous neighbor. In the United States, the state of our civics education is woeful, and it's an afterthought for many school districts in an era when parents and many future employers want a greater emphasis on science and math. That needs to change, and America's school kids need to have a much more consistent and detailed exposure to civics all the way from K-12. Not only will it build a population that is less susceptible to manipulation, it will have the added benefit of boosting our embarrassingly low voter participation rate. Finally, no active measures campaign will succeed against the government whose citizens believe that is serving their interests and discharging its duties honestly. Russia succeeds where there is mistrust and a lack of confidence in government and in other national institutions. That is the case in this country at the moment, and I'm reminded almost daily that I'm a member of an institution with an approval rating in the low single digits, maybe the low double digits. The American people see us as ineffective, corrupt, or both, and they desperately want us to work together to solve the nation's problems. When we repeatedly fail to pass appropriation bills, when nominees for senior government posts languish for years in the Senate, or when simple debt extension votes become an occasion for political hostage-taking, we are doing Putin's work for him and preparing the ground for his next attack. We may be in an era when neither party can afford to give an inch, but at some point both Republicans and Democrats are going to have to relearn the art of compromise and to redefine victory if the American experiment is to flourish and if we're to beat back the challenge of nativism and foreign attacks on liberal democracies. For nearly three decades now, the old ways of consensus and cooperation have been eclipsed by a 24-7 brawl in which truth is the first casualty and all of us lose. That has got to stop for all of our sakes. And the hunger for cooperation, any kind of cooperation, is there. When two of my colleagues from Texas, Democrat Beto O'Rourke and Republican Will Hurd, drive or drove together from Texas to Washington to escape last week's snowstorm, it made the news all the way around the world. Liberty and democracy are not our birthright to be taken for granted, and the United States of America is not exempt from the siren song of authoritarianism, nor are we invulnerable to the machinations of others. Our democracy has been paid for with blood, and it must be nurtured and treated with reverence. In some respects, our committed commitment to popular sovereignty 
is a point of vulnerability, but it is also our greatest strength. If Putin and other undemocratic leaders around the world were not so fearful of the appeal of liberty, they would not seek to weaken it. Now that we know the enemy within our midst, it is up to us to rise to the challenge. Thank you. for that um, very powerful and, in parts, uh, quite moving uh, uh, defense of uh, liberal democracy. Um, it strikes me in your comments that uh, we have uh, a couple of sort of uh, orders on the agenda, um, some immediate business to take care of and then some sort of longer-term uh, problems that we need to address. In the immediate, uh, your committee's uh, investigation into uh, Russian hacking, potential collusion, uh, sort of the wide-ranging investigation that uh, Director Comey uh, confirmed the existence of yesterday, um, that seems to be sort of the first order of business. Um, and so if the public, which is already so uh, fractured, uh, so confused about what to believe, um, is going to uh, understand what is going on, um, how do you view the role of your committee in focusing on the hacking, the collusion, the leaks, the potential you know, uh, conduct that is uh, of, of associates but maybe not directly sort of related? Um, how do you view uh, sort of the educational uh, portion of that investigation and, and really sort of Congress's duty to communicate with their constituents? Well, that's a great question. And as I indicated uh, in my opening comments, one of the keys here is to try to inoculate the public against this kind of uh, action again. And in order to do that effectively, we have to understand just what the Russians did. Uh, obviously, they were involved in the hacking of documents, the dumping of documents. But there's a lot we still don't know. Uh, we don't know, for example, whether this was an operation that began uh, in a way that we have seen before, where they're simply gathering foreign intelligence. This wasn't the first time a foreign nation has been interested in people who may become president of the United States. We have to expect those kind of foreign intelligence gathering operations. But at a certain point, they decided to weaponize the data that they had stolen. Uh, now, was that the object at the outset? And what does that tell us about uh, the Russians' willingness to uh, shed any risk aversion uh, to the winds? Um, or was there something that took place during that period uh, in July, August that caused them to move uh, from one type of operation to another. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered on very basic uh, issues, uh, let alone the issue of whether there was coordination with the Trump campaign. Um, one of the things I had hoped, and I'm you know, very pleased that we were able to do this this week, and we have another open hearing next week, is conduct as much of this as we can in the public. Um, I, I think in, inside the Beltway, you know, we're, we have a tendency to think the whole world is constantly watching uh, and their day revolves around what happens here. Uh, and of course, most people are just trying to make a living and get by and provide for their families. Yesterday may have been the first time the country really kind of tuned in to what is this all about? Uh, you know, we're hearing this noise from the White House and we're hearing this noise from Congress uh, and it's conflicting noise. The president says this is just an effort to relitigate the election. What's really going on here? What's really at stake? Uh, and, and the most important question I always try to answer for people, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or it's the Russian hack, is why should they care? Uh, and, and I have to say, I think uh, uh, as Democrats, uh, my party needs to accept responsibility for the fact that, as I mentioned, the public largely knew uh, that the Russians were behind the hacking and dumping of documents. And we failed to persuade them why they should care. Uh, and so I, I think that's a continuing responsibility um, of demonstrating to the public this is something they need to care about uh, because this is a direct threat to our democratic way of life and not just ours but but others around the world and you know those people I mentioned in Tahrir Square they're all over the world uh, this is a tragedy not only for us but it's a tragedy for everyone whether they plan to come to the United States or not whether they were affected by the travel ban or not they're all affected if they if they view the United States in a different light uh, and they think that the, the leader of the, of the uh, community of democracies um, has decided that human rights representative government is just not that important anymore. Um, so, so I think that public component is very, very important. So, so you, 
uh, ended your remarks. You outlined a rather extraordinarily ambitious legislative agenda, both domestically and abroad. You ended your remarks with uh, a recognition that this has got to be something that crosses party lines, that you know, people don't have confidence in a completely divided uh, uh, Congress or political system. Uh, but yesterday at this hearing, uh, I was really struck by the fact that there were two entirely different hearings going on. There was the one that you guys were conducting, which was all about these issues. And then there was one that the majority was conducting, which was about a set of leaks, uh, uh, some of them quite serious, um, and seemed relatively unconcerned about any of the issues regarding the substance of the leaks. Now, of course, this mirrors in reverse the uh, campaign when uh, Democrats were upset about WikiLeaks publishing the Russian stolen material and the Trump people were only interested in talking about the contents of the material. But I'm, I'm interested in how you even think about um, a broad, ambitious liberal democracy protection agenda in an environment in which we can't even decide what this hearing is about. Well, you know what's striking to me about your question is that the, the agenda I outlined would be considered so far-reaching and provocative. It would normally have been just policy for the United States and prior <laughs> administrations. Uh, you know, supporting a strong diplomatic corps, supporting NATO and Europe. Uh, it, it's such a uh, head-spinning time that that's considered as aggressive as it is. But you're right. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're, we're up against a lot uh, when there are proposals to cut the State Department by a third. Uh, and, uh, and when our NATO allies, uh, uh, the only message that they really hear, and it doesn't matter, frankly, what the Vice President says or what uh, Nikki Haley says, uh, it only matters to them what the president says because they're not sure that any of these other people really matter. Uh, and the only thing they hear from the president is pay up. Uh, and, you know, I, I tell you, being in Munich uh, and talking with our allies there, these are allies that, uh, that had their people, and, and many of them are small countries where everyone knows everyone, uh, had their people fight and die next to American soldiers and Marines and other service members in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they're ba being basically told they're a bunch of deadbeats. Uh, you can imagine how that goes over. Uh, you can imagine how the whole sort of in-your-face America first agenda goes over. Uh, you know, every nation, I think, understands that they put their own interests first. We're not the only ones who do that. Uh, but if you are trying to get the cooperation of others, it's best probably not to start out with that. Uh, you don't want to go into a negotiation, even with your best friend, saying, okay, just so long as we understand from the beginning, I come first. Uh, not particularly effective strategy. But, but anyway, getting back to the hearing, um, you know, I mentioned this at the, during the opening statement I made because I, I thought it was particularly foreseeable that you would see very different questions asked by members of, of the parties. And that's okay. I would be surprised if it were otherwise. What was truly remarkable to me about the hearing yesterday, and maybe I'm just a glass half full kind of guy, but what was truly remarkable to me about the hearing is it didn't look like most other congressional hearings on a topic of such tremendous political significance. There wasn't any attack by one members against the other members. There wasn't any you know, yelling or screaming. There wasn't any of the usual hyperbole. It was actually quite a civil hearing uh, that befits the seriousness of what we were talking about. I consider that to be progress. Um, now, you know, I, I will be the first to admit that if you were going to bet against our committee, if you were going to bet against the entire Congress, um, you would most likely win your bet, uh, you know, 10 out of 10 times uh, betting against any institution these days, uh, particularly in Congress. Um, and so I don't know whether we'll be able to to get to the finish line, which is complete an investigation, agree on what we have found, and issue a single report. Uh, but I do feel it would be a tremendous public service if we can. Uh, and I, I remember at the beginning of the Benghazi Select Committee, which I was dragooned into serving on, uh, of course, many of us suspected that this, the whole goal of the committee was a political object, not really a fact-finding inquiry. 
I had already served on a Benghazi investigative committee that was conducted by the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. We reached a bipartisan conclusion. We issued a single report. We debunked all of these myths and mysteries about Benghazi. Uh, so I'd been through it, and I'd seen the way it should be done. Uh, and here you have this new vehicle, the Ninth Investigation, set up with the purpose of taking down Hillary Clinton's numbers. Uh, and I, I said at the outset of that committee, um, the only way this Ninth Investigation is going to add any value to the other eight uh, and find out anything particularly new is if at the end of the day we arrive at a common conclusion. Otherwise, we'll have wasted a lot of time and a lot of money and accomplished nothing. The people who want to believe the worst of Hillary Clinton will read the majority report. The people who want to believe the worst about the GOP majority will read the Democratic report. And that's exactly, of course, what happened. Um, I think we have to make every effort to make sure that doesn't happen here. Um, but I'll tell you, I would rest a lot easier if I knew there was an independent commission there as a backup. Uh, and, and one other thing, which is a lot less sexy to talk about, uh, is uh, one of the issues I raised with Director Comey yesterday when I pointed out the very small number of people sitting uh, on the dais and sitting behind me who are the entire investigative capability of our committee. It's a very finite group of people who have a pretty big day job in overseeing these agencies to begin with. Um, and so having a, a commission like the 9-11 Commission that is resourced well enough and removed the, from the political considerations would also be a real national service. So it strikes me that you and Senator Warner are in uh, sort of an unusual position with respect to validating the integrity of these investigations, um, both by uh, virtue of your roles of the minority leaders of the intelligence committees, um, and also sort of by strength of personal reputation and, and reputation with, uh, with colleagues. Um, so uh, I think a lot of people are looking to you both to say, you know, are these real investigations? Should we be pushing harder for the formation of commissions or other select committees? You know, is this really being taken seriously? Uh, you, both you and Senator Warner, have expressed some sort of cautious optimism. Uh, you know, do you have sort of a, a line or a way that you're thinking about that uh, if you see the following uh, factors, uh, you're going to come to your colleagues or come to the American people and say, look, we tried, it didn't work, there's no real investigation, and now there really is the need for something else? Are you sort of, uh, how do you think about failure in, in terms of the, the investigation space? Uh, well, I mean, there are, there are, I think, some very natural. Um, inflection points uh, in the investigation. And, um, and one of them I suspected we would hit very early in the investigation, and we did. Uh, and that is uh, we had Director Comey come in and testify in closed sessions. And there were a number of questions that our members asked that were within the scope of what the chairman and I had agreed to investigate. Uh, and the director uh, declined to answer the questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I made the point uh, afterwards uh, in public that I didn't think this was sustainable, that uh, we had a bipartisan commitment to get to the bottom of this, uh, and we needed the FBI's cooperation, and I hoped that the director would go back to the Justice Department and come to back to Congress with a different perspective and willingness to work with us. And he did, and he did. So, you know, had that persisted, uh, I would have said that already we're not in a position to really do this the way that we must. Now, I can't tell you this issue is permanently resolved, uh, now that the director has disclosed there is an ongoing investigation, there will be a continuing challenge about how much the Bureau is willing to um, inform Congress about the progress of its investigation. In an ideal world where you have parallel investigations going on, you have some level of coordination so that we're not stepping on the FBI's shoes and they're not stepping on ours. Uh, whether that will take place uh, is hard to tell. I'm, I'm sure we will endeavor to some degree to make sure that we're not uh, interfering in the progress that each other are making. Uh, I am, you know, very pleased that they're doing the investigation because they have far more resources than we do to devote to it, and they really need to do a rigorous job. Um, but another inflection point, you know, may come for our committee uh, when it becomes time to compel people to come before the committee if they're unwilling to do so as volunteers, uh, or it's necessary to subpoena documents. Uh, obviously, in the minority, we don't have the power of subpoena, um, and, uh, and if we get to the point where we need to use that power of compulsion uh, and we don't get the agreement to do it, uh, then the only recourse we have, the only lever we have, is to inform the public of it uh, and see if the public pressure helps us uh, in making sure that the 
investigation is real and not artificially walled off from any uh, uh, any avenue that's within the scope of our investigation. You identify a series of areas, and you rightly correct me that there's nothing there's nothing that about this set of six things that you described that wouldn't two years ago have been considered uh, just U.S. government policy. Uh, I'm just interested in what kind of receptivity there is on the majority side to an agenda of, you know, what you might call immigration normalcy, uh, increasing rather than decreasing development and diplomatic assistance, uh, promotion of human rights, um, responding to manipulation of media abroad, intelligence sharing, and reaffirming alliances. Is that, is that a set of things that, other than that you think it's important, and I happen to agree with you, uh, you, know, you look around and say there is a realistic bipartisan coalition to put together on this, or is this something that realistically you're looking at and saying, this is what the Democratic Party is going to have to represent in opposition for the next few years. Uh, you know, on, on many of those issues, I think there, uh, there already is a strong bipartisan coalition. I think you're going to see a powerful and ultimately effective pushback, for example, on the dramatic cuts that the administration would propose uh, for the State Department. Uh, I, I think you'll see military leaders step up. I think you'll see GOP and Democratic members step up. Um, I think the generals probably make the case most forcefully when they say, if you want to cut the diplomacy and development, then just you're going to have to buy me more bullets. Uh, and that's a, an argument that I think really resonates with people on both sides of the aisle. Um, I do think uh, probably of the issues you mentioned, the most worrying is the issue of human rights. Uh, because, you know, we can and do in Congress obviously prioritize this in the meetings that we have with uh, foreign leaders, uh, with our uh, counterparts in, in other parliaments, as well as heads of state. But it's one thing when we do it, it's another when the president does it. Uh, and it's noticed when the president doesn't make this an item on the agenda. Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll give you a, an illustration of the problem. I remember, uh, it must have been more than a decade ago, uh, being in Egypt and having a meeting with Mubarak. And at the time, uh, there was an American uh, a dual national, Saeed Ibrahim, who was in custody. He was a secular opponent of Mubarak's. Uh, years later, Ayman Noor, another secular opponent, would be in prison under much the same circumstances. And his wife had appealed to us to raise during our trip the imprisonment of her husband. And, you know, we began the meeting talking about the challenges in the Middle East and the Middle East peace process, such as it was at the time, uh, which wasn't much and still isn't. Uh, and uh, at some point, we raised the issue of Saeed Ibrahim. Um, and the, com the, the whole tenor of the conversation changed. Uh, Mubarak became very defensive, very hostile. Uh, and it was quite clear that, uh, that the, the Egyptian perspective was, um, we're happy to take your military assistance, leave the check by the door, uh, but... Uh, when it comes to discussing anything going on domestically within Egypt that's none of your business, and don't let the door hit you in the backside on the way out. Um, and we got that very clear message because um, that was the message we had sent to him, essentially, uh, that uh, as long as uh, he maintained the peace with Israel or did other things that we wanted, we weren't going to inconvenience him with a discussion about human rights. Uh, and. I'm deeply concerned that uh, this is going to be the takeaway for leaders around the world, uh, authoritarian leaders, whether they're in Ankara or Cairo uh, or Hungary or Poland or anywhere else. Uh, these aren't even going to be matters of discussion. Um, and that part of the agenda, uh, we, we have less power to affect. We have some congressional tools like Magnitsky, uh, but still uh, very difficult. Um, but I, I do think that uh, you will see increasingly over time a willingness of the GOP to find their voice and stand up for matters that they have always championed. Right now in the House in particular, I think what is staying the Republican hands uh, is first they want something from this president. 
Um, if they're from a surface mining district, they want to repeal Obama-era regulations on surface mining. If they're from a grazing district, they want to get rid of the grazing regulations. They, if, if they have a tax provision they want, they want to wait till the tax cuts are done before they find their voice. Uh, and they're also, I think, more concerned in the House, perhaps, than in the Senate of alienating the Trump base voters back home. Uh, but at a certain point, they know the conflict is coming, uh, and not with Democrats, but with the president. Uh, and that's the time, I think, that you'll see a real development of support, bipartisan support, uh, for many of these what otherwise would be uh, quite uh, regular U.S. policies. Uh, please join me in thanking the congressman. And we hope you'll come back. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Brookings for hosting the event and providing audio. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. If you're interested in reading the text of Representative Schiff's remarks, they're available on Lawfare under the title The Rise of the Autocrats. One more thing before we go. The Lawfare Podcast will be hosting a joint live taping with Rational Security and the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast in our third annual Triple Entente Beer Summit on April 6th at 6 p.m. in Washington, D.C.'s Old Engine 12 Firehouse Restaurant. Free tickets are available, but are selling out fast, so get them quick. You can find them through the front page of Lawfare, and we'll also put up a link in the post for this podcast. Hope to see you there.